The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. They had to, you know, pull their their solutions from somewhere, right? So, you know, with, where, where it really started was the online gamers. And, I mean, there's people, this is uh, like a whole ecosystem that I was not aware of before I, you know, joined this whole thing. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, Today, I have TJ Moser, who uh, did a lot of stuff in the Air Force. I know I say that for everybody, but he really did. Uh, 28 years on the active duty side with the United States Air Force. Uh, Got in the Strike Eagle initially, was a pilot flying the Strike Eagle, uh, and then had a lot of really cool kind of leadership opportunities with the uh, commander of the 451st uh, Fighter Training Squadron. So those squadrons are normally at uh, training bases for uh, specific fighter types. And then he was the chief of uh, undergraduate uh, flight training at Randolph Air Air Force Base, and then finished up his career in the active duty Air Force being the deputy A3 for the PTT or pilot training, uh, what was it train transformation? Transformation. There we go. I'm terrible at the intros. Everybody knows that who listens. But TJ, uh, thank you very much for being here with us today. Please tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, thanks for bringing me on. Uh, this is actually pretty exciting for me. As my kids will attest, I listen to a lot of podcasts. It's always good to do one. But uh, um, no, it's good. Uh, no, you got most of it right there. It's the uh, it's easy for fighter guys to get it wrong, but the, it's the flying training squadron. You said fighter training squadron, so that's all fair. Uh, um, but yeah, uh, a little bit of time in ATC, but otherwise, yeah, I think you recapped it pretty well. There's, there were some other things that happened in there during that time, but, uh, but I think that's uh, good enough for, for moving forward. But uh, We here at the Kodiak Shack Podcast would like to welcome our new sponsor, Adamus Cyber. Working with the military means there are some minimum cybersecurity requirements that are in every contract. Complying with these requirements can be painfully slow and really take your company's focus off your military customers and end users. Thankfully, the team at Atomus has simplified the process exclusively for small businesses working with the military. It should be expected that security requirements are going to be a part of working with the military, but they don't have to be difficult. Learn why prior guests on the podcast like Arun from Ops Lab or Brian from Rescon use Atomus to comply with the NIST 800-171, DFARS 7012, and CMMC cybersecurity requirements in their contracts. Check out their website at www.atomuscyber.com and tell them you heard about them from the Kodiak Shack podcast. Their website will be in the show notes. 
We appreciate all the companies that want to work with the military, and we understand working with the government isn't always the easiest thing, uh, but we appreciate companies like Atomist that make it just a little bit easier. Yeah, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, finished up this year, actually, just uh, just retired, and, and uh, as you mentioned, finished out in the 19th Air Force doing the pilot training transformation. Uh, kind of in that, you know, I, I also uh, met up with uh, this company, Vertex, which is who I'm working for now, you know, kind of working on some of the similar things. You know, just was something that, you know, kind of sparked an interest as far as, you know, what was going on and what was possible. And, you know, sometimes with the virtual reality, you know, there's there's people trying to find a, uh, you know, an answer for the solution or whatever. You know, in other words, there, there, there's really not not really a problem they're trying to solve. They just think it's VR that has to solve it. Um, so, but flying is a very natural one that I think, uh, I think it's a, literally the future of, of the way, you know, simulation for flying is going to, you know, kind of roll out. So. Pardon me. I wanted to be involved in that uh, moving forward, and uh, that's why it kind of worked out this way. Yeah, and and we talked about it on the podcast a few times uh, that it is uh, pretty important for training pilots is VR and all that other stuff because the reality is, like, we all, everybody who's in the business sees these massive uh, air, these aircraft simulator trainers that are $7 million each. And we have four or five of them. And we have these massive rooms that are uh, kind of built solely to house the computers and all the equipment for that. And now we see VR trainers that can be, I mean, carried in a small Pelican case that we say like, Oh, that's, that's my entire simulator. And it's kind of, kind of wild. So that's a, that's cool that we, we have so many companies kind of working on it and we appreciate that. One of the questions I had over a 28 year air force uh, or 28 air force year air force career, geez. Uh, what are kind of, how did you see the organization change? I mean, cause that was, that was a good period of time. Like when you, when you got into the air force to when you left the air force, like how was your initial experience to getting into the air force and becoming a fighter pilot versus having been in the air force for 28 years with a leadership perspective and then yeah. you're kind of finishing up your career yeah it's a good question i mean it, it, it really was a big you know span because if you think about it i kind of came in you know towards the back end of you know some of the vietnam era folks that were still kind of around you know i mean that's how that's how old i am um and then when you think about that from a culture standpoint you know i heard you guys talk the other day about you know, just kind of the you know the bro chat type stuff and you know that that was probably the most you know dramatic change you know but then also you know when you think about technology and what you can train to, you know, again, you were kind of talking about what a traditional sim is to, you know, what, what, what is possible now, you know, the Pelican case, you know, put it on your desktop or whatever, you know, roll it out, open the thing up and, and you've got a simulator there. You know, I'm back in the days of, you know, driving across space, you know, going all the way to the simulator in your one little slot that you have going to your simulator, which, oh, by the way, you know, was a bunch of, you know, it was, it was sort of a simulator and there were certain things that the simulator was great for, but it was really in the, uh, in the end, you know, was, was not super effective. Um, and you could get some training out of it, you know, but it wasn't, wasn't really that kind of training that, that stuck, you know, there's, I always tell the story, of, you know, guys getting in there and, um, you know, you're, you're out there trying to find your target and there's a bunch of globs on the ground and then you have this like one built out area and you're like, I think my target's in that area, you know? So, yeah. um, and then, you know, like you'd have the, the old F4 pilot that's your sim instructor that would, you know, you know, go out for a smoke break or whatever during the middle of your sim, you know, and you'd watch him walk by on the peripheral, you know, because you weren't even like closed down. So both technology and cultural, you know, and the cultural thing, 
you know, that's, that's just a huge shift. You know, you think about, you know, I mean, essentially I joined the Air Force back in the late, uh, I shouldn't say this out loud, but the uh, 1980s, believe it or not. Um, and so, to, yeah, to go from, nice. that's ROTC, but still, you know, to go through that kind of cultural shift and all the things that, you know, happened over those times, you know, it, it, it was a, a pretty dramatic shift over time. Yeah, I bet. And it's, it's so funny because I mean, I, I joined a few years after you, but the, but that is, was my similar experience, you know, it was, it wasn't F4s. It was uh well, I guess it was one F4 guy, but it was, you know, a model F16 guys who are doing the same thing, who are like, oh man, you know, you, you kids these days. And, sure. uh, but it's, but the thing that cracks me up and people probably don't realize this when we're not, when we talk about a simulator, again, these are massive simulators with tons of computer racks, not everything is, is pristine visibility. So, you know, they're the, the majority of the maps that you look out the window on are not always perfect resolution or perfect quality. It's the, the target sets are going to be good quality images. Your airfield is going to have good quality, but everything in between, like making that a quality image used to just cost money. You know, everything you wanted, like a high quality rendering was just dollars. And so, uh, one of the, one of the things I got told about a previous simulator I was using, uh, was that the vast majority of the computers that are actually in a sim building, uh, are just to run the visuals, you know? So VR mm-hmm. makes perfect sense. Like the, the majority of the computers are not running the simulation. The, the majority of the computers are just running projectors that are projecting on screens. And it's like, man, I think VR is a great solution to that because I wear the screen on my face. So it's really only rendering for my instantaneous field of view. And then wherever I turn to next. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If you think about that, I went to Davis Moth and, you know, for the A10s, uh, eight projectors for one simulator. Right. And then not only that, you've got the screens that go along with that. And then you've got the building that all that has to go into. You've got the HVAC that has to keep that room, you know, cool enough for all that computing power and those projectors. You got the bulbs that burn out, you know, so, yeah, every once in a while you go, you know, like Vario just came out with like their new, you know, headset for XR, you know, and it's a, it's, it's called a focal edition or whatever, but it's made for everything within arm's length, which is what you want for a cockpit, right? Cause you don't want to have to like not see your airspeed quickly when you look inside. So you just, you know, so if you look inside, you see it right away, right? Instead of, you know, so, but as expensive as those things might be, when you start to compare it against that legacy technology you were just talking about, it's, it's, it's pennies, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely much more affordable. So you get that and then that, you know, increases that access that you have to those devices on um, that access. Again, that whole thing about driving across the base and you go into the simulator for your one block, with the guy that's going to go out on a smoke break or whatever, you know, now that's, you, you know, you walk out of your flight brief and it's right there and you go, Hey, I need 15 minutes to go work on that one procedure that I, you know, didn't quite get right or didn't quite see the, uh, you know, the side picture or whatever. And it's right there and you got an instructor or in, maybe in the future, you know, automated as well. So I think there's, yeah, it's just the perfect use case for VR. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, cause you were actually, you were at 19th Air Force working with the people who are kind of uh, championing these things. I think VR made its initial break into the flying world, uh, at least in the Air Force in AETC, Air Education Training Command, in the pilot, like the undergraduate pilot training side. Uh, would you agree with that? Or am, am I missing something that was kind of early? No, that's, that's, well, you know, I'll, I'll back it up a little bit because they had to, you know, pull their, their kind of, um, their solutions from somewhere, right? So, you know, what, where, where it really started was the online gamers. I mean, really, that's yeah. where it really started. 
And I mean, there's people, this is uh, like a whole ecosystem that I was not aware of before I you know, joined this whole thing. Um, there's just people who in their, you know, garage or their basement or whatever they've built out. I know a guy built a 737 in his basement. There's an amazing thing called the Warhawk Project where a guy built out, you know, probably much better soon than that one I was talking about, um, you know, in Davis Mothin. And he built it out, you know, in his, I don't know where, but, you know, his basement or whatever. And it's incredible. So I think PTN, when they came online, it was, you know, people were seeing that and going, hey, you know, people are teaching themselves, you know, how to, how to fly. They're using some of the products that are out there. I mean, heck, I even remember back in the training, you know, where, you know, guys would go out and get Microsoft Flight Sim. You know, it wasn't very good at the time, but at the same time, they could go out and just kind of get their procedures down. Get, you know, even some of it was even like getting the low level, um, you know, kind of just, just, you know, some of the visual references and whatnot, you know, stuff that was, we're talking like back in the 90s, you know, stuff that was still available to them. And what really made it kind of work for them was that those guys were doing well, you know, you know, their, their training and people were, you know, trying to figure out where they're getting the additional training. And it was from products like that, like Microsoft Flight Sim or, or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's where it really started. And then in 2018, you know, PTN, I think just said, hey, let's take a broad look at what's going on. General Hua said, hey, go run with scissors up in, you know, up in uh, Austin. And that helps. I mean, it doesn't work without, you know, that, you know, kind of leadership to go, hey, look, I'm going to tell you guys to go somewhere else and train somewhere else and just like see what works. Right. And not everything worked. Right. And some things got, you know, thrown out in the process. And, uh, and then it kind of settled in on, on the things that were working, um, you know, and then from leadership, you know, kind of supporting that, you know, from General Goldfein, you know, as it's transitioned to General Brown, you know, it's you got to have that kind of. Um, support from the top and then of course you know the most important thing was the funding right um and then as, as 19th air force took it on you know general wills really dived right into this and, and, you know he was definitely a huge proponent of this so again you have to have that leadership from the top or it just doesn't work right you can beat your your cranium against the wall for only so long and then eventually you just go all right we're just going to do things the way we used to do them but but you got to have that support from the top yeah. And that was one of the things I've, I've told my innovation intro story a few times on the podcast, so I won't get into it, but that's what I loved about the innovation side was it was, it was go do, go find ways to do things better. And because I think anybody who's been in the, you know, the air force, even short period of time can see there's some inefficiencies. So it's great that you're given that latitude to try to, to come up with solutions. And so I want to build a mental picture for everybody who hasn't gone through undergraduate pilot training and IFF and in and, and a FTU or a B course for a specific MDS uh, or aircraft type. But so what is, what is this VR trainer replacing? I'll explain. And I know uh, TJ and I probably did the exact same thing. Undergraduate pilot training. It was a two foot wide poster by about three to four feet tall. And it was a God's eye view picture of every switch in the, the cockpit of the trainer you flew. So like uh, probably the tweet, I assume you were flying in the T-38s when you went through UPT. And then uh, I was one of the first few years who went through the T-6 uh, Texan 2. So the, the new uh, T-6 that they made for pilot training and then 38s. So now you're literally sitting there, uh, some people even holding a broomstick, pretending like it's the flight controls. And then you're sitting there thinking about, hey, and you reach up to the poster and you pretend you're fl flipping yeah. a switch. 
So this is what people used to do. And we call it, we refer to it as chair flying. And I'm, I'm a big dumb caveman, obviously. Why, why wouldn't I be a podcaster? Cause I don't know how to use computers. But what I did when I got to the F-16 training course was I had the stick and throttle that HOTAS uh, made. It was the HOTAS Cougar. Um, and it was the identical to the F-16. And instead of hooking it up to like a Microsoft flight simulator, I would just sit on my bed and think about flying the F-16 and, and hit the buttons and switch the master modes and all those kind of things. And this is what chair flying used to be. And then now today we are talking about a student being able to, in an unclassified space and then probably in a classified space in some ways, be immersed into a world where they can be in their jet and fly around or get these what we call sight pictures. So train your eyes and your brain where things are going to be and where to look. And so from going from a poster that's on the wall that you pretend to uh, flip switches to an immersive world where you get to experience it like that, there is no better training than that. And then, you know, it's only going to get better over time. So I don't think people understand the gravity of this, this VR, the MR, the AR, the XR, all of that. It's, it's a, an order of magnitude, if not more difference in the quality of training you can get as a student. I mean, would you, would you agree to Yeah, I totally do. I mean, I see it as like, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to be pre-internet to watching the internet roll out. And within certain spaces, you know, obviously that was transformational. And I think that uh, virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, you see all the stuff that's going on in all three of those realms, all kind of collectively called extended reality, um, you know, really, really applying. And, and you know, like I said, there's, there's not always, there's a good solution that, you know, needs to be done in extended reality, but. I can assure you the flying, I think, uh, very well uh, lines up with that. And back to your point of talking about chair flying, you know, it's, it's not only that. I mean, I can remember even closing my eyes, just closing. I mean, you had the poster on the wall, but just closing your eyes and just trying to visualize different things. Well, you know, that's not really what you have to do. You know, even like General Wills, he'll talk about like <clears throat> when he first, you know, flew the T6 and then when he came back and flew the T6. And the biggest change was that the, you know, the poster on the wall went from black and white to color. You know, that was the biggest innovation over, I can't remember the time frame, but it was, it was a decent amount of time between those two. So, yeah, so I think when you do this, um, you know, and then, you know, just as a, an aside, you know, I, I went to, you know, as part of working for Vertex, I went to uh, uh, United Airlines last year. And, you know, we go and, and I've got, you know, a lot of friends that are transitioning, as you can imagine, to that or UPS or whatever. Um, and you go and, and the first thing you see is there, they call it the, uh, well, Paper Tiger, but uh, I think it was Paper Tiger, Banner Tiger, I don't know, something like that. But anyway, the, the, the little bit of different name, but it was the exact same thing. They'd, they'd add a little bit of wood to that poster, and you just sat there, and you did the same thing. You'd have your big old Dash 1 or whatever the equivalent is for manual for, you know, your 3777, whatever. And and you're just looking at, you know, the same thing, a poster. And then you're pointing at this thing, and you're saying what you're supposed to say, and pretends flipping the switch and all that. And yeah, you can go a lot further with that. I mean, you know, it flows in a virtual environment where you can do, you know, actually, you know, throw switches um, that are spatially where they're supposed to be, as opposed to what a poster, which is not 3D, it's, you know, two-dimensional. Um, yeah, it's, it's a game changer, no doubt. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, things, and one thing Vertex is working on uh, that we'll talk to in a little bit is kind of how we take someone from a purely virtual world to a mixed reality or augmented reality where you're now experiencing a virtual flight, but real world switches or being able to interact with virtual switches. So, which again, like these things, this is a new technology that's, that's gonna, that's gonna keep uh, changing and getting better. One question I had for you 
kind of obviously you you had stateside assignments you went overseas you worked with uh i think it was nato in their uh shape uh nuclear side right so i guess how did all that stuff kind of you you have all these experiences you come back to aetc and 19th air force how does that kind of shape your perspective of the broader air force impact of we need to train pilots better yeah definitely no that was an incredible experience you know as much for my family and personally as it was you know the, the experience but yeah i think that that earlier story i was telling you offline about you know um getting my my chief's name um you know that little bit of nuclear stink you know carried over to when i got to europe right and then towards the end of my time there i was i remember i was over at a, a friend of mine's house he's an italian f-18 um i think he was a pilot but uh and, and i was over at his house like it was literally one of the last things we did and he's like he's like dj dj you got to check this out and he's like, he puts, he gets out his, his, I think it was an Oculus or whatever. And I, at the time I was going to ATC, I had no idea what I was doing. Right. And he's just like, he goes, check this out. Oh, Laura, oh, Laura, you know, check this out. You know, he's like, and he puts the thing on, he's, we're shooting missiles and we're dogfighting and stuff like that. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. You know, here's this guy in Italy that puts on, you know, his Oculus. He, he, he's like pushing his kids away. Like, nope, daddy's time to play right now. You know, and <laughs> so that literally was like one last like dinners that I had before I left and came to ATC. I had no idea what I was doing. I showed up, you know, just a couple weeks after General Willis showed up and General Willis had just gotten the, um, you know, the table slap from General Goldfein to say scale PTNs. PTN had by that time moved back from Austin and moved into, you know, back into Randolph and they were on class, um, I think they were still class one, was still in session at the time. You know, General Goldfein slapped the table and said scale it walked away and General Wills said, scale what? And then General Wills, like I literally <laughs> showed up for a meeting and, and uh, I thought I was just going to introduce myself, you know, and get told to sit down and all the standard things that you do at a meeting. And General Wills was like, that's TJ Moser. He's going to be running, you know, our pilot training transformation efforts while he's the chief of undergraduate flight training. So it, you know, it was definitely a, a, you know, a handful of stuff to take on that, you know, when you start to see what was going on there and you get the chance to experience it, you're like, yeah, I, I can see where this is going to make a difference. I mean, you got to be careful with it, you know. And I, I, I listened to a bit of you know one of your previous uh, ones and previous um, episodes, you know, and, and you do have to be careful with it. And I, I think we did roll it out about as, you know, I said run with scissors, but that was to find out what works, right? But once we started to find out what works, one, we continued to you know to evolve that. It wasn't just hey, this this works, let's just go with that, and that's it. It was hey, let's roll it out right, you know, and and, and you know where you're getting better. You know, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, to get to get folks better first and then faster when able, you know. So that was kind of the, the, the kind of the mindset. And so instead of just like cutting hours and saying, hey, we don't need that anymore. Guys are still on, on their fourth, you know, flight, whereas they used to solo or whatever, you know, fourth. Fifth, fourth is kind of the earliest possible. But, you know, the average is about seven or eight flights in where you're soloing. And that was literally cutting, you know, the time and a half. Well, instead of just saying, hey, we don't need that anymore, we just reallocated that time towards, you know, more difficult competencies. And that was kind of the, the mindset that we went through. And, and so if you look at it, you know, I mean, I know a lot of guys, especially in the fighter community, you know, you know, maybe have this perception that hours were cut. If you actually look at the UPT 2.5 syllabus, it's actually more hours uh, because you do a little bit more on the T6 and they didn't cut anything out of the T38. So, um, so but you're just getting more out of those hours. And so that was kind of the, uh, the transition 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, uh, so in our episode with uh, Drago Walters that just aired recently, and then previously with uh, Tiger and Slayer on uh, the Debt 2-4 episode, uh, I, I I think I did, uh, praised the fact that it was exactly that. It wasn't a cookie cutter, we do this now. It was, let's explore the space, let's experience what is good, what we want to keep, what we want to move around, because uh, that's that's tactics generation. In a, in a fighter squadron, in, in different aircraft, you say, let's see how this works. And some days you get rolled up and some days you're like, okay, that didn't work. And some days you execute and you're like, hey, that was extremely effective. Uh, so that's what I appreciated about the general innovation space. But even beyond that, the fact that people are given the latitude to run with scissors and, and find things that are game changers and can change the way we produce pilots. Because the reality is like, we, we all know we have older airplanes, recruiting's difficult, retention's tough, and we have to figure out a way to solve the problem. So we can't, we can't just like keep executing the same way, expecting a different result. So I, I appreciated the fact that PTT happened and UPT 2.5, you know, came about because it would have been insane to try to do the same thing we've been doing for decades and expect just magically things to to work out. So I, I, I'm glad that happened. And I think I'm, you know, this is my surprise face when fighter pilots start talking when they don't have all the, uh, all the answers, because the reality is, you know, there's, there's a uh, sport complaining in the fighter community and they're, they're pretty good at it. I know. Cause I do it a lot, but yes, the, uh, when you were, no, oh, I was going to say sport complaining. That was very well cleaned up. Uh, <laughs> <the> terminology. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm terrible at, uh, I don't know how to bleep things out, so I just try not to cuss on here. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't, I don't mind. But the, uh, so then once you moved to the A3 position, so one thing we've, we've kind of referred to A3 a few times, and to be completely honest, like I don't have a extremely good understanding of the A3 position. I know it's kind of the ops side, if I'm even saying that right. So can you explain a3 and then kind of how that was overseeing the PTT portion of 19th Air Force, I assume it was. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely 19th Air Force. Yeah, so I, uh, again, that was kind of, a, uh, you know, kind of what it evolved into. Really, it was, you know, I, I, I didn't really have a, a name for my position that I was in. I, I was the chief of undergraduate flying training. And like I said, that was just a lot when we took on UPT 2.5. We, it, you know, it turned out that that was going to be kind of a full-time job. Uh, you know, chief of UPT 2.5 seems a little bit weird or whatever, you know, it just kind of became pilot training transformation. And then, you know, just to give it a name, it was that. But the difference is all the 8.5 guys, you know, that's your plans and programs, right? Those are the ones that were like buying all the tech and working all the uh, contracts. And, and PTN itself, pilot training next, fell directly under the 8.5, right? So the 8.5 was, you know, had a chance to, you know, basically go to them and go, hey, what's working or whatever? What do we need to actually scale? And then what my role was, was to, was to help scale that, right? And so from the three, you were talking about like building the syllabus, trying to figure out how you're doing this at a base without interrupting you know, this, this, this machine that's already running. And you can't really interrupt at all, like period dot. I mean, it's just, as you know, things like COVID, you know, was, was just a, was a blip within ATC. We just kept going. We basically just trained right through yeah. COVID. Um, you know, things that are a little bit harder when you have, you know, issues with the aircraft. So if you remember the OBOGS issue with P6s when it shut down for, you know, the oxygen system, uh, you had the proxy touchdown, you know, years and years and years ago, you had T38 problems you know, recently, and of course, still have those because it's just an older aging, you know, aircraft or whatever, but you just have to train through those as best you can. But that's kind of the three's rule to keep that operation just kind of running. 
right? So that's kind of where I fell. And I was working, you know, like I said, the syllabus and just making sure that the scaling of that worked. And then when it came to the actual like technology, I went down to the five and said, hey, what do we need next? And how do we how do we get after those things like seamless access to content, you know, and, and incorporate immersive training, you know, all the, you know, craft, you know, all those things were kind of, you know, um, you know, planned out and funded through the five, uh, if you will. So, yeah, so you, you pretty much got it right. Three is just operations and, and uh, five is kind of your, your thinking ahead group. Well, and I think one, I was actually talking with uh, one of the innovation companies uh, kind of offline and they didn't realize that there was an A3 in each organization, you know, like each MAGCOM, each even even numbered Air Force has their own A3s and 5s. Because they, you know, when I said, hey, you want to talk to A3? And they said like, oh, at, we did at ACC. And I was like, well, I meant at, you know, AETC. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of people working to make these things happen. How does it work when you're on the, you're kind of in the ops side and you're, you know, you're in the A3 section and we have those like, you know, if you want to call it like a black swan event or just an event, like how could we have foreseen, you know, the F-16s, you know, being ground, all the D models being grounded for a period of time or T-6 is breaking or 38s. Like what does that do? Cause if we have projections of yeah. production, like how does, how does that work out? Or do we just kind of, I mean, we obviously roll with the punches, but I mean, it, being there, how do you, how do you kind of work through those things? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, our, our kind of gold number was 1480, right? 1480. 1,480 pilots a year, you know, and we, we hardly ever hit that. In fact, if you look back in the day, you know, we were closer to that and kind of dipped over the last few years, things like the OBOGs, the prop safe touchdown, you name it, you know, COVID or whatever, you know, all those things put pressures on that, right? So you you're, you you really don't have any sort of relief from trying to hit that number or close, right? And we were we were down to 1,100s, I think by the time I left, they were pushing a little bit closer to 1,480, but there was some, uh, you know, I wouldn't call them inflated numbers in there, but you know, when you get your wings in the T6, instead of getting them after T38s, you know, that's going to add to your numbers just a little bit. That's kind of a temporary bump, if you will, pilots that are, you know, mostly trained, but not fully trained. So, um, but, but anyway, all that aside, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't stop this bottom line. So things like OBOGs were, were just brutal, right? And so, you know, what, 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 what was the decisions at the time? They didn't have a lot of good decisions to make. So you just go, all right, we're just going to accept the pilot with fewer hours because we just, we can't, you know, just turn that spigot back on and, and get it back up to the, the same number of hours and then that kind of in my time while we were there you know we, we slowly realized that hey that that may have been you know somewhat short short-sighted again i don't know that i would have made a different decision at the time um and and you just have to you know try to add those hours back in and then with dupt 2.5 it changed everything because it added hours in but it also said hey we're going to ask more out of that student we're going to try and get more out of that student through immersion and then we're going to get them to a point where we're, we're going to you know tell the FAA that they're certified to go be pilots in the Air Force or out in the national airspace or whatever. So, you know, so that's, that's kind of how that kind of ruled out. And, uh, and, uh, you know, they're still, I think, working through that, you know, the Air Crew Summit is next week and that's always the, you know, the litmus test of, of the Air Force to go, Hey, ATC, how's it working out? How'd it go last year? And I've been out of the game for about a year, so I don't know exactly how they did this year, but I do know that they were on an upward trend and they were on an upward trend when we left as far as just production, but, to your point, it doesn't stop. I mean, it's just it's just somewhat relentless. I mean, COVID was a blip. I mean, COVID was like interesting. We got to go fly, um, you know, and that's that's how we did it. You know, it's it's and uh, and, and it, you know, it's, some of that comes on the backs of the instructors. And you got to make be creative with how you do it. You know, swap the crews and you know, doing an A team, B team stuff and trying to keep you know some sort of social distancing and all the you know 
the stuff, masking and all the stuff that you go through, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, you're mission essential and you got to make it happen. And, uh, and that's what, that's what we do, right? That's what, that's what the Air Force does. Yeah. And I think one of the things, just giving the broader perspective and, you know, we'll keep a 60,000 foot view on this, but there is a, you know, COVID stopping our production of pilots or stopping our ability to wage war today or in five years or in 10 years, that that's an issue. You know, that has global repercussions. Uh, so the fact that AETC can keep producing pilots and keep feeding ACC and AMC and all those people with, with people that, that has a, that is a global impact. So I think people probably don't understand the gravity of that, that we're still able to do our jobs through something like that. And I think, I mean, being an FTU instructor pilot through it, it was, it wasn't my favorite time in the air force. Uh, but it was, uh, but it was definitely one of those times where, like you said, you just have to do it. And I think I imagine, which I don't know for certain, but I imagine people like, you know, you going through pilot training, me going through pilot training, the students today are just like us. They are driven. They are dedicated. They want to achieve, not because they're forced to by the IPs, but because they have an intrinsic desire to do well. You know, there's that Robin Olds quote, like, you know, you have a fighter pilot has a desire to do well in their own eyes, but also in the eyes of their peers. And I think that's one of the situations where, people understand like, Hey, the pilot training will be stressful no matter how, because one it's, it's inherently dangerous, uh, you know, or it's, it's, uh, but it's also something that you want to achieve. You, you don't want to fail at it for self-preservation reasons, but also just because you want to, you know, achieve those lofty goals you set before yourself. Uh, one, uh, one question you talked about craft really quick. Were you, had you worked with craft? Cause I'll say like OHW. Oh, no, I was just about to say no craft was actually, I mean, that was the one that, you know, I do, I do a lot of, you know, um, whatever triathlons, you know, marathons, that kind of thing. So for me, and then, you know, just having clone fighters, you know, and then going through the retirement process, you know, things like, you know, how, you know, how, how your back holds up. You know, I, when I went into my VA appointment, you know, the guy, you know, sat there and he went, okay, 28 years in, you flew fighters for this amount of time. He, he just goes, you know, there's 25 things wrong with your back or wrong with your body, I should say, you know, and I, I had to cut a couple out. I was like, okay, yeah, you pretty much nailed it. But there's a couple things there that I can't really claim right now. So, um, but, but the point is that, you know, it, it, it's hard, right? And, and it's, it's, it's harder as you get older because you realize, you know, that what you did when you were younger, you just kind of, you know, I can sleep when I'm dead, you know, mentality, <laughs> you know, it works only to a point. And then eventually your, your body kind of catches up with you or whatever. So craft, you know, kind of take a look at that. And then also, you know, it's not just the physical part, right? There's also the, you know, the resiliency and just kind of giving folks tools, right? And especially in today's world, we really need those tools, something to fall back on, you know, whatever that is, uh, mindfulness or whatever it is. But, um, but there's, there's a lot of different ways to train. And, you know, and ours was just, you know, you know, here's a, here's a, you know, Snickers bar and a, and a, um, you know, and a Mountain Dew and, and, you know, just power through it. And, 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 you know, that's, that's not the right answer, right? Nutrition is a huge part of that. So when you put all that together into a program, give it a cool name like craft, and then you roll that out there, I think it gets a lot of trust from, you know, the students that are going through as well. I talked to a lot of them, um, you know, but they, they really liked it because it was just, you're stressful, right? And you want something to kind of fall back on and that gave you that kind of um, resource. So yeah, I was really excited about that one when we took that on and it was, it was kind of came out of the uh, special forces world, you know, so that the, a lot of the concepts and then stole a lot from Luke uh, as well because they had a good program uh, that, that they were doing already. And so 
put those two together, and we had just the right person to do that at the uh, 19th Air Force. It was uh, yeah, really, really powerful, I think. Um, it probably hasn't reached its full potential yet, but uh, but I think a very powerful concept. Good idea moving forward. Yeah, and I, uh, one of the things that uh, – that I have always been a huge proponent of it. I had it uh, when I got to Holloman. They stood up a program while I was there, and it was it was one of my favorite parts about my entire Air Force career because, I mean, just like you said, stealing it from operators. Obviously, operators have to be physically fit, and fighter pilots, you know, no matter how much they may want to be an operator, they're they're not technically an operator, but there's a physicality to the job, and understanding that. And, and making people more physically capable to pull G's or just be in aircraft for long periods of time or, or double turn or as a, you know, as a pilot training uh, instructor, sometimes you're trip turning. So now you've got three flights yeah. in one day, maybe in a T6 or a three T38 uh, in the South, which is pretty much where all of our training happens. So it's hot and it's humid. And you want this person to hop in the jet three times a day. They need to be physically able to be a safe pilot or even just a safety observer. Uh, so I, I love the fact that the Air Force started doing that. And the reality is like a guy like yourself, just intrinsically, you want to, you like to work out, it seems. And I did too. Uh, but the people who don't in like necessarily want to work out, but then the community that they get find themselves in, they just work out. And I think that's what we're really saving is those people who wouldn't have worked out, but now there's a whole organization and, and just kind of a community around it. And the fitness and the nutrition kind of come along with that. And rather than the, you know, I mean, my, my, uh, a family member of mine used to fly F-16s, uh, my mom's cousin. And, uh, you know, back in the day it was, it was red meat yeah. and cigarettes and all those things that help with G tolerance. And nowadays it's like, Hey, you, you need to have some physicality to your, to your out of the jet life. And that's probably, it's not going to make you bulletproof. You're not going to be able to pull G's indefinitely, but it's going to make you better. Like there, there's a certainty there. So I, I love yeah, this same. program. And uh, like I said, I, I think too, it also speaks to the broader kind of let's keep evolving, right? Let's listen, right? Cause there's, there's things that are changing. And, you know, I would say the same on just immersive technology, you know, just, I mean, it wasn't just, I mean, look, there's limits to virtual reality, right? And, you know, I know you want to talk a little bit about mixed reality, augmented reality and all that, you know, there's limits to that. You know, and you have to keep like evolving that. You know, really, you know, mixed reality, as you can imagine, pretty much everything from here up you're seeing outside is all virtual, right? But then you look down, there's different ways you can do it or whatever. Uh, where you can see your hands, you can see everything you're touching, you know, and that kind of gives you that tactile feel or whatever. But those things, and then putting that together in a crew concept, again, VR for the most part is you're flying a single seat and you're going to go out there and learn the procedures. But we all know, well, for the most part, you know, unless you're single seat um, as your as your final you know answer or whatever you're going to go fly you're going to be working in a crew right so you got to be able to kind of tie all those folks together and, you know have them you know all working off the same virtual space right so but my, my point i guess is to say that you know you have to keep evolving all of those technologies you know it's not just hey this this works let's just make that work and that's all we're going to take from that technology how can you get creative with that and tie things together how can you get you know, um, you know, essentially, you know, you don't want to recreate the sim because you, you don't need a new simulator, but you want to take advantage of where immersion really kind of, um, you know, has its strengths and, and take it down that road. Um, and then, and then craft kind of being the same thing, right? I mean, there's things about that that, you know, are, are more effective for, I mean, there's, it, what was interesting about craft is they would do that for each aircraft, right? So the amount of G's and how you're going to fly, you know, 1.5 is way different than flying a 3.0 hour sortie, you know? And, and the kind of things that you're, 
you know, you have to kind of think about and be prepared for them. To your point, if you're hot hitting in a fighter and you're doing, you know, a, a trip turn in a day or whatever, um, you know, that's, that's a whole different, like, like, I mean, that's like, you know, what I was saying earlier about marathons where you, you got to almost have a marathon mentality, right? Cause you're out there for eight, nine, 10 hours or whatever, even longer in some cases. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I guess my point is to say that, you know, it's just not just take a good bit of, you know, uh, a good idea or a good piece of technology and, and just say, hey, that's it and stagnate to keep evolving that. Yeah. And that's, uh, one of the things that you reminded me of, uh, uh when I was in Misawa air base in Japan, uh, we would have surges. So a surge would happen where you fly five separate flights in one day, and then one pilot will fly three of those five. And then another pilot will fly the two night sorties. Uh, but I remember wearing my long johns, my, we call it a poopy suit, but an anti-exposure suit. Cause the sea of Japan gets pretty cold. Uh, and you've got all your flight gear on your harness or survival vest. You got your G suit and the building is about 80 degrees, uh, because the furnace is on and it's just going to run because CE controls it. Uh, but I remember just sweating profusely and then walking out the door and then it's 20 degrees outside. And so I'm sweaty. Now I'm cold, start up a jet, go fly, land, come back inside, start sweating again and do that three times in a day. And, you know, and they're like, Hey, you know, let's all be safe. And it's like this, I mean, that's probably the most dangerous part of the whole day is just the, the physical nature of it. So, uh, so kind of great segue, you were talking about kind of the mixed reality yeah. and everything. So kind of how did Vertex get its start? And then kind of what's Vertex doing currently? Yeah. So for, yeah, Vertex has been around for actually about 25 years. They've been doing you know, a lot of army contracts, but at the same time, a lot of just, you know, kind of delivering training in the best medium possible. Right. So if that was, you know, back in the day, a book, or maybe it was, uh, you know, uh, computer-based training or whatever, and just kind of evolving, right, interactive media, whatever it was, it was the right way to convey that training, you know, Vertex has been doing that for, for 25 years, um, which is kind of impressive when you just think about that. But in about 2015, you know, I think um, the president and, and uh, the company kind of saw the shift towards, you know, virtual reality as maybe being a, you know, a, a way to deliver training, especially in a military environment, you know, in, in a... Um, you know, whatever, whatever kind of training it was, like I said, a lot of army stuff initially, obviously I think they saw the, uh, you know, the flight training aspects and how that was a good fit for it or whatever. So they kind of pushed all the chips in and said, yeah, I think we need to start like moving in that direction. So that was 2015, 2016. So as you can, as you can imagine, you know, kind of getting ahead of the curve that turned out to be very quiescent, right? Where they had a, you know, kind of a, a decent, uh, foothold into it. They understood the, the market, they understood, they understood the industry and they understood the market a little bit. Um, and so when, when PTN was ready to start, you know, doing their, their scaling of what worked, right? So lessons learned that were actually working. Um, they put out what's called a commercial solutions uh, offering through uh, the Defense Innovation Unit, right? So that's what uh, HC did at the time. And Vertex at the time, again, I was active duty. In fact, I was probably sitting there in that, you know, living room with that Italian guy, you know, shooting, you know, um, shooting uh, missiles off of his F-18 or whatever. But they, they ended up, you know, putting out this, you know, basically offering to, um, to, to see how that could, you know, work out and Vertex, uh, you know, put in a pretty good, uh, pitch for that. And they ended up winning the, uh, the contract, uh, for that, for, for PTT. And so all of these, we've got, you know, T6A, T6B for the Navy. Uh, we've got T38C, T45C, uh, TH1H, uh, both in the immersive and then they mixed reality. So the multiple mixed reality, um, you know, solution that we're putting together for them is replacing their FAA level D uh, certified um, 
uh, simulator that they have there. I mean, that's 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 a pretty huge step. If you think about that. Um, yeah. It doesn't exactly, you know, it's not like a one for one thing there, but there's things about it that it does like ten times better. And there's certain things, um, you know, that uh, with an FAA level D, you know, you need to have you know six degrees of freedom of motion, right? Well, if you don't value that, and the Air Force doesn't require that because you know, we we basically self certify. We don't have to go through the FAA. Then you know that's something you can do. But the training you're getting out of an immersive you know device is still better than what you can get out of these twenty million per copy uh, FAA level Ds. So and you're doing that. I mean, five of these total for about six million dollars. So as you can see, the you know the the ability to get that kind of access to it. So that's kind of you know uh, Vertex is you know um, you know kind of how we, how we've kind of evolved. Um, you know again. Uh, PTT was a big catalyst, as you can imagine. Uh, and then, you know, as you start to go through that, you know, we just recently took on um, a commercial partner. And we've had, as I mentioned earlier, some discussions with other commercial entities. So, you know, back to that United experience, you know, that was a company we were talking to. We ended up uh, working with this company called Lyft. Uh, it's an academy out of Indianapolis. They service the uh, Republic Airlines. And uh, they they just they saw what was going on at PTN, and they said, hey, we're all in on that. And so... You know, that shift is happening, uh, you know, all the way across the industry, all the way across, uh, all the way to the commercial side. So, and Vertex is involved in all that. And very recently, uh, you know, eVTOL, if you're familiar with the uh, electronic vertical takeoff and landing, um, you know, there's, we've got some inroads in that as well. So, yeah, really, really exciting company that's uh, definitely uh, willing to kind of push, push the boundaries and, you know, run with scissors a little bit. So, it's been fun. Yeah. One, one of the things, just so people kind of, understand because really the VR and in in immersive trainers that we've talked about previously is all a single seat perspective. So now just so everybody in the audience kind of understands, now we're talking about multi-place. So think you like two people, just like in an in the 737. This is a crude aircraft with multiple people having to interact with one one another. So they can't they can't exist in a purely virtual space because you need to actually interact and see the other person doing their part. Uh, so w- what kind of challenges do that kind of bring when you're saying like, hey, now we want a left seat and a right seat, you know, captain and first officer, or just, you know, Air Force style, left seat, right seat. What are those kind of constraints or what are some of the problems that you kind of have to overcome in a situation? Yeah, no, it's, like it's, it's actually uh, interesting, actually, because you know, not only the flight controls, you can move flight controls in one, you've got a control loader on both sides, right? So uh, through this thing called a controller area network bus, you know, CAN bus, you, you can, if you push the, you know, the uh, stick forward in one aircraft, it's going to, you know, move in the other aircraft. Same thing, you know, helicopter or whatever, you know, throttles, you know, is a uh, twist throttle on the collective, right? You turn that little twist throttle, guess what? The other one has to, you know, roll with that, you know? So, and then the space that you're working in, you know, also has to be, you know, I can't go and press a button that the other guy doesn't know that I'm pressing and or doesn't make the same has to make the same corresponding change, whatever it is that you're, you know, button pushing or, or switch pulling or whatever it happens to be, has to change in the other one. So that's the whole like multi-place. And so that's a level of synchro- uh, synchronizing that has to happen. The mixed reality helps out a lot, right? Because the other thing when you're doing flight training, you kind of need to see, you know, the hands, right? You know, it's, it's, it's like, hey, Bobby, you know, I don't know what to do with my hands thing, you know, well, you don't want somebody doing something with their hands or reaching up to grab the gear when you know you're you're above or below gear speed or what you know what I mean. Like, so you want to be able to kind of and when you see the move as far as instruction, you don't want to see when you do mixed reality. You'll have like a mask that's out there, right? There's different ways to do it, but one way is a mask. 
you might see an arm, but not the hand because it's going through this mask that's going out there. So there, there are a lot of, you know, uh, tricky technical, you know, things that you kind of have to overcome to make sure that that all works. And then of course, you know, tying everyone in together on the same radio frequencies, the same, you know, all that, which is, you know, uh, you know, also just normal to any other simulator. Um, but then to do this all in a, uh, you know, virtual environment just kind of adds another level of complexity. But there's, there's been a lot of projects like the Air Force took on through uh, a different company, SAIC. They took on the T1. Um, I think um, I heard a bit of one of your podcasts where they talked about that. And, you know, they, they've been rolling that out uh, you know, recently. And that's T1, obviously, multi, multi-place uh, cockpit as well. And then, like I said, we're building one now for the uh, Fort Rucker for TH1H, uh, kind of the same thing. And I could see down the road, again, you get to that smaller footprint, which is what you know, these, these simulators are called. And if you think about that, that pretty much encapsulates it pretty well, right? You know, less HVAC, less building, less, you know, you put them on a small platform if you want. If you want the six degrees of freedom, you can put them on a small platform. You don't have to move that huge thing around because, you know, most of the visuals are right here, right? Um, you know, and, and then, of course, you add that to with as much of the cockpit as you want to build out. So you could, for the TH1H, Basically, it's everything inside the cockpit. Uh, and then you just mask around that down to the chin windows underneath, uh, like the, the displays. Uh, you know, above that is obviously, you know, as you're looking out, you turn around and look back, and you see a virtual jump seat, or you could have a real jump seat or, or whatever. For the one we're building, it's a real jump seat. You can take that same concept for that jump seat, put a, put a gun on there. That's the UH1N, you know, and, and then that guy's, you know, in multi, uh, or sorry, mixed reality. Um, you know, doing that, and then you just tie all that crew together for training. And, you know, what, what? here's the shocking thing, right? There's communities that are out there for these multi-place aircraft. I didn't know this, um, that don't have a simulator where everyone gets to go train in the simulator. Was, yeah. That's crazy. I had no clue. I mean, color me, you know, surprised, but I had no idea until I started doing this. B-52s, for instance, they don't have a good way to do that all together as, as a crew. We're building one out for the AC-130J. Again, they don't have a one. The first time they go fly together as a crew is when they go fly because they have a lot of part test trainers, but they never get together until they actually go out to go fly. At least that's my understanding of it. So we're building one out right now for them in uh, in uh, virtual reality. And, uh, and that one's rolling out here in the next couple of months. But um, yeah, so interesting stuff, right? But there's some challenges to get over. So one thing kind of, especially working in, you know, having flown a Strike Eagle uh, previously. So having that crew coordination, you know, whether it's a strike Eagle or a, a B 52, or just, we have to be a cohesive team. I mean, that's gotta be terrible for getting people on the same page and expectations being the same way. Like having a trainer that would let everyone train together, maybe not geographically in the exact same spots they would be, but just in general, they're all a part of the same scenario has to just be a game changing. Yeah, experience. it is. Yeah. hundred percent. Like I said, there's, there's technical things to get over there. There's, you know, latency issues and all that. You don't, the interesting thing is you don't have to be in the same space, right? You could be all at different sitting wherever you want, especially the virtual, obviously mixed reality, you kind of need to have access to the same, uh, you know, physical components that are there. But in the virtual reality, you know, you could be anywhere. You could be, I mean, if you can get over the latency issues, you and I could be in the same aircraft, you know, I mean, you know, just yeah. you know, working together or whatever, flying at the same time, uh, you know, obviously networking things together is, you know, relatively easy to do and, and you know, flying. I mean, you think about uh, that perspective, you know, that's, that's, again, a little bit of an aside, but, you know, just being able to network things together in a, in a really simple way. I mean, you know, you think back to the old, you know, pattern parties where you just put the tape on the ground and you walked around and pretended like you're at certain spots. 
made radio calls. Well, now you just, you know, and, and students were doing this on their own, just taking the aircraft and going, hey, let's just put a bunch of them in the pattern together and pretend we're at different spots actually flying in the same pattern. You know, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. But, uh, yeah, getting the inside the cockpit, you know, multi-place dynamics down is, is a little bit of uh, synchronizing that has to happen, but it's, it's, uh, it's pretty powerful training. That's cool. One thing, uh, well, I have a couple questions, so hopefully I remember them all, but one of the other questions I have speaking selfishly as a F-16 and now F-15C pilot, all of our trainers are classified. Yeah. So do you see the, the VR, the mixed reality, you see it making its way into the classified space or you think it's going to be an out of the vault kind of experience? No, it's just funny you bring that up. Um, we're working with the Defense Innovation Unit right now and potentially we don't know who exactly is going to be the, the kind of host or end user of it, but um, we're, we're working on exactly that. So kind of the first step on that, uh, Google actually wrote up like a feasibility study as to how you do that and essentially to air gap them initially, right? That's the easiest way. You just don't have connected network but you still have to have you know a lot of hardware that needs to go into that vault that you know, may have been made in a, in a you know a country that's not necessarily friendly to the united states and you have no idea what they're actually able to do if you air gap it it helps right because that just kind of cuts it off you, know, you shut down all the ports and you shut down any some sort of bluetooth or wi-fi or whatever you know and you can get the thing into there um you also have to have the um trade uh, taa compliance um i don't know exactly what the the, the um, acronym is but you know, to be able to get like the headsets, most of these headsets are, you know, made in China. So, um, again, you have to have a TAA compliant, you know, uh, parts, uh, also for that. So, you know, companies like that Barrio that I mentioned earlier, you know, that same one, that focal edition that I was talking about is also TAA compliant, you know, which, which is helpful. Um, so yeah, so that's the next step is to get these in there. You're, you're, you're teaching in a, in an environment that, uh, um, you know, allows you to do tactics and allows you to introduce weapons and threats that are, you know, potentially classified. Now, the trick with that is that the, these are more effective if they're on a network. So now it's getting off that air gap and getting them into a IL-6 compliant, you know, cloud, you know, because IL-4 is, you know, nipper stuff and then your super stuff is IL-6 or whatever, but uh, but into, into that kind of cloud environment and then to be able to really access the, you know, the, the full array of, you know, threats and weapons, et cetera, that are out there. Um, and then I think, you know, this is where I think that the, the, it has to go and where it's going to really take off the F-16 community or A-10 or whatever, you know, is when you can do that, you know, you probably heard of DCS or whatever. And I, I'm pretty sure the C-model uh, community uses that right now as part of their training. I don't know exactly. I know David Smothin does. I know Strike Eagles do. There's other units that do. Um, but anyway, I know it's got a you know bad name or whatever within, uh, you know, just because it's, it's, you know, there's some aspects to it that are, that are based out of not so friendly countries, but, but the point is, um, you know, put that kind of training in, in what I would, for lack of a better way of uh, putting it into, into a fun environment, right? Where you're out there, I want to say playing a video game, but you're learning tactics and you're flying against, you know, threats and dropping weapons or, or shooting weapons, whatever that are, that are built into these kind of gaming systems, you know, like, uh, DCS, et cetera. Uh, and I think that's real, you know, one of the, one of the big, um, you know, shifts that you're going to start to see. And then other things that I've been seeing that I think are also part of the, um, you know, the, the wave of the future, and it's really actually the present right now, is when you can tie in a JTAC, and that JTAC puts on a VR, they're on the ground, you're, you're looking at a common space, you know, you're, you're, you're putting your, you're, you're doing your, your cast or whatever, you know, from, you know, uh, in, a, in a common environment, um, and you're flying and getting that training, they're getting training on the ground, uh, I, I just think it's a game changer. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think that's, that is how we're going to be able to do these things better. You know, we talk about the PTT and the new PT 2.5, like we're, we can't just train everybody, whether it's JTACs or Wizos or whoever, the same way we used to. Like we have to, like you said, find new technology and explore every possible use case for it to, to leverage it to produce people who are better than we were when we got out of training and more capable. And because I mean, tomorrow's fight is different than the fight that I grew up with, you know, and, and we got to be ready for it. Would you say in the kind of VR, like mixed reality environment, uh, so software and then hardware, which one is currently moving faster and which one kind of, which one do you see in the future becoming the, like leading the, the pace, if you will, in, in updates and in becoming more and more useful? Well, I'd say, I'd say they're moving at the same pace, but I think hardware is the one that has to move furthest, you know, and it's, it's, there's some limitations, yeah. right? You know, I mean, virtual reality, um, headsets, you know, when, even when I, when I, when I was in that, you know, F-18 and I was talking about Italy or whatever, I mean, it was, I was like, ah, this is interesting. It's kind of fun, but there's no way I look inside my cockpit. I couldn't really see a single, you know, airspeed indicator or anything like that. Whereas you can see where that's not really, you know, something you can use for training, right? So that, that, that resolution and acuity has to just get better. Um, and, and over time, um, the other thing is if it, if it isn't like super, um, has good resolution and, or, you know, good latency, cause there's, there's kind of two things that are going on there. On the hardware side, you know, you got to keep the frames per second up to where you're not really seeing this kind of laggy, kind of jittery, uh, and then it can't be out of focus, right? Because your brain's trying to trying to focus that, right? Your eyes are trying to focus on that. The other thing your eyes are trying to do is your eyes are in their mind, in your mind, you're looking miles off in the distance or, or maybe just a half mile off in the distance. In the reality, it's two inches away, right? And so that kind of leads to things like cyber sickness and whatever. And so... When I first got to ATC and put on the first, you know, headset that I put on, I was like, hmm, "Boy, I don't, I don't know. You know, one, I can't really read my airspeed gauge. You know, whatever. I, I need to look inside quickly because I need to see what speed I'm on on final. And then two, I need to be able to, you know, do this for, you know, whatever, 45 minutes or an hour. And I couldn't do either at the time. But that has come a long ways. And, and nowadays, I can put it on for an hour. It's, it's not a big deal at all, or, or an hour longer, whatever. But really doesn't phase me one bit. So that's the hardware piece, right? And then the software piece, you know, you got kind of a couple of tricky things that go on with the software, right? Like the avionics and the aero model need to be good enough for training, if not, you know, the aircraft. They're as good as a sim, let's put it that way. And I say the sim, but that's kind of a funny thing to say, right? As good as the simulator, you know, as the real simulator. Well, what's a real simulator? <laughs> um, kind of an oxymoron, yeah. but, um, but, but it has to be good. So the aero model has to have some where you're getting something out of that. You're actually going to have to get the muscle movement out of that. The avionics, you don't want to have something where you go to a menu and that menu doesn't actually exist in the aircraft. That's negative pattern patterns. And so, so there's, there's, there's that. And then there's also the environment that flies in. And not only the environment needs to be, you know, kind of realistic and, you know, the weather has to kind of look right, you know, and all that kind of stuff. The train, you go out there, local area procedures look like local area procedures, you know, and it's actually like, hey, I, there's that Quonset hut that they were talking about. It's on the river like they just talked about, you know what I mean? And, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that has to go on there and there's, there's just strife in all of those. And so I'd say they're moving at the same, you know, kind of pace or, or kind of lockstep or whatever. Uh, but I think hardware had to come to furthest. Yeah. Awesome. And that makes sense. Cause, and I think maybe we're just a different, you know, generation. Cause I feel like 
these students nowadays, they're running, they're running video games and stuff for, for hours and hours and it's not giving them fatigue or nothing they're noticing, but, uh, well, awesome. What, uh, what, what else did we miss? Anything, anything I, uh, uh, didn't ask or, uh, you, you think it's interesting that we didn't talk about? No, no, I think, uh, I think you hit it, um, Vader. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, like I said, I think there's, there's a lot that's going to go on in this space. I don't think that it's, it's a flash in the pan, if you will. I mean, that's why, I, you know, I kind of bet my post air force life on it, uh, to some extent. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing that you'll eventually hit, you know, I know you're a little different because you're, uh, I think guard, is that right? Um, but, um, you yeah. know, but you know, at some point in time you have to kind of go, all right, well, that's what I did for 28 years. What do I do next? Right. What's, what's interesting. What, what is relevant, you know, and, and, you know, obviously virtual reality, I, I should just say extended reality, because I do think that virtual reality has its kind of limits. If you will, I think it's great for what it's been used for. And I think it keeps, you know, the cost down because you're not including all that kind of hardware that goes along with it. But anyway, uh, really the future is kind of a mixed reality, if you will. And then augmented reality, we haven't quite gotten in quite gotten into that and I won't go down that, you know, field, but I'll just, you know, throw out that, you know, Red Six is doing some amazing stuff there, right? Where you go out and actually fly in a, in a real aircraft and you look out on your visor and, you know, here's a projection of a tanker or here's a projection of threats and weapons. And, you know, instead of like back in the day when we used to fly low levels and say, all right, there's the SA-2 coming at you, you know, look at that, you know, telephone pole that's flying at you and you can see the big smoke trail and you do some clip to or, you know, whatever, you know, sort of reaction that you got to do for that. It's like, okay, it's over there, whatever. Uh, you know, you actually look over there and see a missile flying. I mean, stuff like that is just like, to me, is just like, wow, you know, mind blown. So yeah, I think that, and then just kind of tying in the rest of, you know, the, the, the Air Force, you know, all, everything else that goes into that, right? You got maintenance doing, you know, learning how to take care of an aircraft in virtual reality where they've actually, you know, uh, have, you know, seen a part and, you know, worked on it and changed it, and, you know, a thousand times before they ever have to go do it, right? Because they can do that in virtual reality. I mean, just stuff like that to me, it's, just, it's a game changer. The Air Force is moving in the right direction there. So, you know, I think it's a, it's an exciting space uh, moving forward. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's it's very exciting, and, and we love talking about it. So thank you for coming out and uh, and joining me. If uh, if you'd like, would uh, how can people contact you and reach out if they want to work with Vertex? Well, I'm real big on MySpace, so that tells you how. <laughs> no, tmoser at vertexsolutions.com. Um, and, uh, you know, other than that, just uh, LinkedIn's pretty good for me, so Timothy Moser or whatever. I know a lot of people reach out to me on that. And really, once you start kind of getting into that, it's a weird kind of ecosystem of people, but it's, it seems to be, you know, kind of a lot of the same. Uh, but LinkedIn's pretty good. So LinkedIn and uh, straight for via my emails is probably the best way. Probably not going to find me on MySpace. Yeah. Well, uh, well, great. And I'll add your uh, email yeah. and your LinkedIn to the uh, show notes if anybody's looking for it. And uh, everybody, you know how to contact us, uh, you know, uh, info at Kodiak Shack. If you uh, want to email us, tell us how good or bad we're doing. And then uh, KodiakShack.com if you want to check out our uh, website and uh, listen to the audio there if, if you're into that. But uh, well, TJ, thank you again for uh, for being here. And uh, and I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it was time. great, Peter. I, I uh, enjoyed the podcast. I've been kind of binging over the last couple of days. So Really, really enjoyed it. It was really uh, uh, good, a good time. So appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.